Welcome to Open Minds Radio with Alejandro Rojas. Open Minds Radio is your UFO news authority, presenting evidence and the latest news regarding the UFO phenomenon. Here's your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hello, my friends. We are back. I hope you had a lot of fun on July 4th, which is actually Independence Day. That was our independence from the British, for some of you who don't know, because some people I'm sure are out there. No, uh, it's Firecracker Day. With this independent stuff, man, that's the day we light firecrackers. But actually, if you look it up, Wikipedia, uh, you'll be able to discover that. How are you all doing? Welcome to Open Minds, your UFO news authority. This is Alejandro Rojas. And we have a great show for you today. Brand new breaking news, actually, today from Roswell. Uh, Antonio and I were in Roswell last weekend where they hold uh, an annual festival. I think this one was the 61st in honor of the crash at uh, in Roswell, the alleged crash in 1947. Would that work out? That wouldn't be the 61st then. But anyway, it happened some time ago. And it was, of course, a source of a lot of controversy. People have been talking about it for a long time. But surprisingly, just like we talked about with Tom Carey a couple weeks ago, there are new things happening all the time. And this is exciting because there's a gentleman who worked at the new works at the New Mexico Military Institute. He teaches high school level earth sciences and college level geology. He's interested in this subject and he took it upon himself to do his own research because he wanted to find a piece of the alleged crash UFO and he just might have done that, and he's in the process of proving it. So we're going to talk to him about that. This is really exciting breaking news. We um, Nobody else is really talking about this yet or has talked to Frank, but luckily since we were out there, we got to meet him. He was part of the panel. Uh, you may have read our Roswell story where we talked about the panel of researchers and saw his picture up there. So we're going to talk to him all about this and get you some more information, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Otherwise, you know, up and coming, what tomorrow, the uh, I hear our next magazine is supposed to hit the stands, and that's the Hollywood Invasion. Our esteemed colleague, Jason McClellan, who does the UFO News updates every week, is the guy who wrote the cover story on the invasion of Hollywood. My mom really liked it. By the way, she read that the other day, and she thought it was great. That Jason's a good writer, she said. So he he's not too bad. So it, that's very exciting. You're going to be able to pick that up at the stands if you're not a subscriber yet. Or like many of you do who are subscribers, you go to the stands and you buy five or six and give them to your friends and family. So we encourage that, and thank you for that as well. If you're in the Irvine, California area, or you just want to fly out to MUFON from July 29th to 31st, You'll also be able to meet some of us out there. You'll be able to meet Maureen Ellsbury. She's famous on YouTube now for our UFO update videos, if you can go check her out there. Uh, Jason will also be there. Um, our editor-in-chief, Angela, will be there. and uh, So we'll be there to sign magazines and to... You'll be able to take pictures with us and, um, you know, because we're famous. I can even prove it. Yesterday, I'm going to plug myself. I was out filming 
for a travel channel show on the paranormal. So hopefully that'll come out soon and that'll be fun. And I'm not afraid to brag about it because that was pretty cool. Anyway, let's get to some of the exciting stuff that we cover at openminds.tv on a daily basis, and that is UFO News. And the gentleman I mentioned before, Jason McClellan, is here to tell us all about it. Hello, Mr. McClellan. Hello, Alejandro, and greetings, everyone. This is your Open Minds News Brief for Monday, July 11th, 2011. For those who uh, can't figure that out, that would be 7... 1111, as you pointed out this morning. Yeah, I was very excited about that. 71111. There's some kind of numerological conspiracy there. I wonder if 711 is doing any sort of special promo. Have you noticed they've been doing a lot of extraterrestrial theme movie promos? That's right. They're doing uh, Cowboys and Aliens right now, and they did a big Mm -hmm. uh, promotion for Super 8 as well. The Slurpee might be a back-engineered technology. Wasn't now this is this is back more in your era, Alejandro. Mm-hmm. But wasn't one of their slogans something like "There's something afoot" or something? I don't remember like something that. like that. Maybe I'm just thinking of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I think so. Excellent. Well, let's get into the news, Alejandro. We'll start with sort of a peculiar story. Uh, the U.S. government filed suit against Apollo astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell on Wednesday, July or June 29th in Miami Federal Court in attempts to reclaim a 16-millimeter data acquisition camera that was used during the 1971 Apollo 14 lunar mission. According to the Washington Post, the lawsuit contends Mitchell recently tried to sell the camera at an auction. The movie camera from the lunar surface was reportedly going to be auctioned off by the British auction house, Bonhams, as part of a space history sale in May, with a pre-sale estimate of $60,000 to $80,000 but Bonhams pulled the camera from the auction when they learned about the lawsuit. As Discovery News explains, the suit points out that all equipment and property used during NASA operations remains the property of NASA unless explicitly released or transferred to another party and that NASA had no knowledge of Mitchell being given the camera. While NASA asserts ownership of the camera in question, Mitchell's attorney, Donald Jacobson, contends objects from the lunar trip to the moon were ultimately mounted and then presented to the astronauts as a gift after they helped NASA on a mission. Jacobson also stated that NASA approved the transferring of ownership of the camera to Mitchell 40 years ago. So it's kind of strange that they would wait 40 years to bring this lawsuit to get their camera back, and some contend that maybe they didn't realize it was gone until now. They just mm-hmm. started going through there. Well, they lost all those Apollo uh, films. Yeah, so so it's, it's possible they're very bad with records. They're very bad with their do inventory see, tracking. Do you see a conspiracy here? No, I, I don't see a conspiracy, but many people do. Yeah, well, he did. They were uh, seemingly upset about his you know, recent um, criticisms well, about NASA holding stuff back. Correct, and of course... Edgar Mitchell has, has been outspoken about his belief in extraterrestrials, so that's something else that uh, fuels some of the conspiracy thoughts mm-hmm. right now, that maybe NASA's coming to get this camera because it might contain some incriminating evidence or something, but that would make more sense if it was a camera from today, a yeah. digital camera that has a card in it or something, but this is an old 16-millimeter yeah. film camera. Unless there's a little alien and stuck inside of it. 40 or years ago, if if there were footage on it, I'm sure Edgar if any, got it already. Yeah, if there's any conspiracy, maybe just give him a hard time because he gave them a hard time. Kind of like, so. hey, you're not our friend anymore because you're being a jerk or something. But then another theory that's been put forward is that NASA needs money 
and I'm sure it caught their attention when, hey, this piece of junk camera is going to fetch 80 <laughs> yeah. grand. We want that 80 grand. Yeah, we can so. put, build another rover tire with that. <laughs> yeah, it's not too far off, my friend. <laughs> yeah. That is it is. Let's talk about crop circles. We have another crop circle to talk about. It was a crop circle that appeared in a wheat field two weeks ago. And this is sort of a, uh, a hometown crop circle for us, Alejandro, because it's here in the U.S. of A. All right. Not, not an English crop circle. Crop circle USA. That's right. So this this one was in Beardstown, Illinois, and I like that name. I wonder if people there have beards. Mm-hmm. Lots of beards in Beardstown, Illinois. I would grow a beard in Beardstown. That's a fantastic name. I would, too. Mm-hmm. You'd feel uh, you're not doing your job if you don't have a beard yeah. in Beardstown. People probably look at you funny like, you know, you're disloyal. If you ain't got a beard, get out. <laughs> yeah. But this uh, circle was 49 feet in diameter and was initially discovered by the field's farmer who was driving around in his tractor and looked over and saw it. And he kind of he didn't believe it and, and pulled out his cell phone camera, took a picture of it. And he went over and actually investigated. He was looking around for any, any traces, footprints or anything and didn't see anything. And then uh, the BLT research team, which Nancy Talbot is a part of, we've had her on the show many times, uh, they apparently came out and visited the field to examine the circle, um, but their results are still pending. And the farmer has since plowed his crop, but the circle is still visible, as happens with crop circles. You can mm-hmm. still sort of see it. And apparently this isn't the only strange thing that's happened in this field. Other strange things have happened before, such as, I guess I've seen these before. You don't hear too much about it, but conjoined watermelons, cantaloupes, and pumpkins. All and three? Oh, Probably in not all three together, but uh-huh. but like Siamese watermelons, like two oh, yeah. together. Interesting. And uh, even another crop circle was, was seen there uh, mm-hmm. years ago in the same field. And, really? Yeah. So while the farmer was uh, initially intrigued by the crop circle, he said if another one appears, he's going to immediately plow it. Because as a result of this recent circle, he's been completely inundated with calls from UFO and crop circle organizations wanting oh, to see gosh. the circle. So he says the calls have just come in day and night, nonstop. Oh, so no. He's, he's overwhelmed and wants nothing to do with crop circles. Oh, that's too bad. So Especially it seemed like, you know, we hear, we hear about that a lot with the, with mm-hmm. the farmers in England because they deal with it a lot. Yeah. But this guy was kind of intrigued by it, but uh, it was soured pretty quickly because yeah. he's just overwhelmed with people. Well, hopefully, that's the type of person where you got to make a friend with and say, well, you know, if it, I understand your problems, just get a hold of me and on, and, uh, on that. And hopefully, uh, BLT will make a good relationship with him and he'll trust he, them he because seemed, at least they spend time to do something. I really, I really admire the, at least how, how responsive he was to people wanting to research it a little bit. You know, he, mm-hmm. he certainly welcomed BLT there. And also, uh, one of the local reporters, I guess, was able, he invited them out to the field to see the circle and do a report on mm-hmm. it. So, and it was a simple circle, right? Absolutely. Yeah, how interesting. I, I mean, I'm excited to hear what BLT finds, and I'm sure they have initial, some initial thoughts. The we'll preliminary uh, results I saw, the, the only things that have been released from BLT was that when they got there, they saw signs that could have been um, animal tracks, hmm. a few animal tracks in the area, but that's it. Hmm. So. Yeah, it looks like a very clean, nice circle. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well... Let's talk about something we have been talking about a lot lately because it's been in the news a lot lately, and that is uh, radio telescopes. Astronomers in Australia hope that Western Australia will be selected as the home of the world's most powerful radio telescope. 
According to the International Business Times, Australia is in competition with nine African countries, including South Africa, that have made it to a short list of nominees to become the home of the Square Kilometer Array, or SCA radio telescope. The Sydney Morning Herald reports that Australia is considered to be the best location for the SCA telescope, but politics could influence the decision. Professor Fred Wilson, astronomer in charge of the Australian Astronomical Observatory in New South Wales, is a major proponent of building the Scott Radio Telescope, telescope in Australia. The Sydney Morning Herald quotes Watson as saying, The Scott will be by far the most sensitive radio telescope ever built. It will have the potential to reveal all kinds of things, ranging from the possibility of picking up sig- signals from aliens if they exist. The Scott Radio Telescope will also be used to explore dark matter and to explore the origins of the universe. A group of international scientists is expected to make the final decision in 2012. Construction will then begin in 2016, leading to a projected operational date of 2024. It's a long ways away. Yeah, and again, we talked about it last last or two weeks ago, I guess. We were off last week, but these radio telescopes take a lot of money to operate. Yeah. Big time bucks. Mm-hmm. So here's yet another one, and it will be the most sensitive, so most powerful. So um, we wish them well. And uh, there, again, many other people picking up the slack for SETI, who is experiencing their own financial problems. Yep. And I noticed that the Russian scientists are getting a little more news, too. We wrote about them um, and them talking about SETI and METI actually sending messages, which is controversial. Uh, because people think, oh, the aliens will come get us if we send them messages. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's It's interesting. There's definitely a lot of talk going on, and um, people in other countries at least moving forward on uh, possible SETI solutions. Yeah. And well, SETI, interesting enough, too, is it being a universal term, not just here. It's one correct. organization. But, correct. Uh, but, you know, we, being in the in the U.S., we hear a lot about, about SETI, the U.S.-based SETI. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to hear just how, you know, these radio telescopes, these big telescope arrays are global. Mm-hmm. They're in various countries all over the world. Pretty soon everyone will have them. By 2024, they'll probably uh, be able to make like a radio telescope hat that uh, is wirelessly communicates with each other. And so we'll all be wearing these hats. Um, and it'll be like one gigantic, ginormous Radio telescope, that's my idea. People freak out now about their cell phones causing radiation. What do you think they're going to th- freak out about with a big People dish don't on mind. Head? We still use the radio. We're like, I don't care. Radiate my head. I'm, I need my text messages. You're true. Yeah, you're exactly right. I keep my phone with me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. I'll take it. Let's talk about this, Alejandro. More fireballs. Now, I'm fascinated by these. We yes, hear a are. lot of stories about fireball UFOs. Aren't you fascinated by fireball UFOs? I am lately, especially with the right. recent story. Yeah, some of these are crazy. And there was a fireball UFO seen in the sky above Cuernavaca, Mexico, on Wednesday, June 29th. And one witness captured the flaming object on video from the side of the road. The Epic Times described the object in the video as looking like a meteorite dropping from the sky with a bright pinkish orb at the bottom trailed by two long glowing orange tails. But the Telegraph points out that people who have viewed the video speculate the object could simply have been a meteor or space junk. However, the slow movement and trajectory of the object in this video uh, presents the possibility that the UFO was actually an airplane, and the glowing orange tails were simply the sun reflecting off the condensation trails from the plane. 
An aerial object's trajectory can be difficult to determine, and optical illusions have cer uh, certainly thrown people off before. If you remember the uh, mystery missile off the coast of California mm -hmm. that was caught on video back in November of 2010, and that uh, would appear to be a missile blasting through the California sky it was simply an airplane. No, but it wasn't. because of the angle of the video camera and the plane's long vapor trail, the object appeared quite missile-like in the video. Well, the object observed last Wednesday above Cuernavaca, Mexico, uh, may have been an airplane. No official identification has been made. But as the Epic Time points out, fireball UFOs are witnessed in countries all over the world. Mm -hmm. And we've reported that uh, certainly in recent weeks. Yeah. And in fact, today, um, well, it was last week, um, there was a, another fireball UFO seen in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And it looked identical to this one, the same sort of like winged pattern with the... Right, that's what's incredible about these. They seem to be almost like, it's very strange. It's like a, a maybe a circular thing with two um, tails, one on each side, the left and the right. I mean, uh, and we've seen several of these. In one of the videos, it seems clear uh, that the object changes its trajectory. That is correct. I think these videos are really weird. I mean, we haven't seen these before. All of a sudden, there's a string of them. I mean, on a regular basis. If they were just jets, you'd think people would record this sort of thing on a, on a regular basis, but it seems far and few between. And with the Mexico one, I believe, um, it was suggested that it could possibly be some sort of supersonic jet or something. Hmm. And you can see that with it has a weird, distinctive wing pattern. Yeah. And to me, the wings almost, almost uh, look like like the Virgin Galactic plane, hmm. how they're kind yeah. of weird. But, yeah, no idea what they are. And like like you said, some of them go straight and some change their direction. That's entirely possible, some secret space plane or, or something going on. That's what I think is interesting about that missile out of mm -hmm. L.A. because uh, that now they're saying could possibly be a plane. But a lot of experts were saying back then it is a missile. And I was curious, and I looked into this and uh, a little bit, about, you know, the space plane at the Air Force, the secret space plane unmanned that they've mm -hmm. been flying around. They call it secret even though they told the public about it, but they're still right. secret about what it does. Where the heck did they launch that thing? And what if people, how, wouldn't people see the missile launch? And I guess in California, in Southern California, they do launch missiles kind of on a regular. That's All where the they time. launch their secret payloads right. out of. So, and of course, just like they were with the unmanned space plane, they're unclear or they they don't come forth with the information or they leave information out or they just straight out lie. So who knows what, what those things could be. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, you're right. There's it's a lot, lot of unknowns up yeah. there that are both from here and not from here. So You know what I think is cool too is that the Epic Times has been picking up a lot of UFOs. They really have. Yeah. And they ran your video that's gotten nearly 200,000 hits on YouTube. Right. And then... They, the next one was these orb things, these fireballs, which they've been running stories on for the last couple they of They have been now. focusing more on things like this. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Pretty cool. Good job, Epic Times. Epic Times rocks. All right. And one more vi one more story we'll do here about uh, something from our home base of Phoenix. The first monsoon storm of the year slammed Phoenix last Tuesday evening. I'm sure many of you heard about this and saw the crazy pictures and videos online of the storm arriving in the form of an ominous haboob. And for those of you not from you here that don't know, Alejandro is called a haboob. <laughs> a haboob is a massive wall of dirt. And I must correct 
media around the world because mm. and even some some not so far away uh media organizations keep referring to the storm as the uh, sandstorm and this is Arizona. We don't we don't have sand. We have dirt. Yeah, the big dirt, dirt storm. The desert dirt. Here are dirt. We're, we're not the, the the Middle East. We have mm-hmm. dust storms, just a big dirt storms, disgusting. But we had one uh, last Tuesday evening, and uh, a video of the impressive Habub's approach was shot by a camera on a helicopter belonging to local ABC news affiliate KNXV. And this video quickly gained international attention when CNN posted the video to their website. And two lights in the video are visible both appearing very close to the mammoth wall of dirt. One of these UFOs simply hovers while the other moves through the sky and eventually flies over the KNXB helicopter. Some viewers began to speculate that these UFOs were extraterrestrial in origin, and various people were putting up um, videos on YouTube showing the CNN video and adding their own commentary and pausing the video and saying, see, it looks like a saucer, it's a UFO. But the identity of the mysterious moving light soon became apparent when the Phoenix Fox affiliate, KSAZ, aired a story about a Southwest Airlines plane that was making its final approach to Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport as the Haboob was rolling in. According to KSAZ, the plane couldn't land on its first approach and for some reason had to turn around and land to the west just before the cloud covered Sky Harbor. As for the identity of this stationary object in the sky. It was most likely another news helicopter, and quite possibly it was the news helicopter that captured video footage that was published by Russia Today, showing an alternate angle of the Southwest Airlines plane as it was coming in. Mm -hmm. So I think we identified them. It's kind of interesting watching them in the video, and you see different angles, and you can't really tell for a while. It looks like the, the Southwest airplane isn't moving, but it's just the angle it's coming in at. And an interesting tidbit here, my mother in law was on that flight. Oh, you're kidding. She was. Oh, that's it was funny. The, the South, she must have had an flight. amazing view. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, the pilot was kind of freaked out, too. He said he'd never seen anything like it. And they oh, just my watched gosh. it. It was rolling in. And wow. Pretty cool. Yeah, and thanks to ABC15 for referring to your story on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And The okay. Ominous Haboob. Haboob. I like that name, The Ominous Haboob. Ominous Haboob. It's fun to Good say. Good name or something. And I'm uh, for those of you who have never heard of a Haboob, I'm glad we could educate you today. We try to provide some yeah. education with our show. There's wall of it's disgusting what it's all about. dirt. Yes. Disgusting wall of dirt. All right. Well. That is it for the news, Alejandro. Remember to check out these stories and more at openminds.tv, your source for UFO-related news. I'm Jason McClellan, your Open Minds News Correspondent, and you've been briefed. Back to you, Mr. Alejandro. All right. Thank you, Jason. And if you want to see more Haboob action, you can go to my Facebook. I had a couple of pictures because I drove into that wall. It was funny. My mom gave me a call and said, there's a big storm coming. You should wait it out. And I'm like, no way, man. I want to drive through that sucker. I've been waiting for a, a Haboob to come around. Although I didn't know the term haboob either until the next day. I thought it was a big dirt storm. So very exciting stuff around here in Phoenix. And some of the other stories I want to tell you about that you can uh, see on our website uh, recently. Of course, we talked about the fireballs. But uh, Antonio found a really interesting Vietnam UFO story. And this is cool because it was discovered by the National Archives. It was in the logs of uh, one of the bases out there in Vietnam, just talking about a UFO sighting people had seen. And this gentleman who wrote the blog about it with the National Archives who found it 
was uh, kind of did his own analysis and said, you know, we can't figure out what this thing is. It seems to be a real genuine UFO. So that was really cool. So you're going to have to check that out uh, on the site. Also, uh, we have other stories such as I mentioned the Roswell uh, story a little bit where uh, this is kind of exciting because really this is the first time these four main researchers have gotten together, and that's Kevin Randall, Tom Carey, uh, Don Schmidt, and Stanton Friedman. They haven't all been together in one place uh, ever, I don't think, uh, at least uh, to do a panel. And I know some of them haven't been together for a long time. And uh, so it was great to have them together on this panel here in Roswell. And I was able to get some pictures of that, uh, along with Julie Schuster, who runs the Roswell UFO Museum, the famous Roswell UFO Museum. So you can see some pictures of that. And it was really at the end of this press conference that uh, Frank Kimbler came up to speak. And he talked about some medals that he discovered. And he told the very interesting story about how he discovered the metals and the analysis he has done. And for the first time on air, you all are lucky enough to hear this story from Frank himself. In fact, let us go ahead and get Mr. Kimbler on line and talk to him directly. I am very happy to have Mr. Frank Kimbler on the phone. Frank, are you there? I'm I'm here. Hello, how are you? I'm uh, I'm doing wonderful um, here in uh, sunny, hot Roswell, uh, New Mexico. Yeah, I bet you you're probably rivaling us. I think we're at 107 today. What about you? Uh, it's it's over 100 today, and the humidity's up really high. Which, oh, which really? Kinda, yeah, really. All we want to do is kind of stay inside and stay cool. Yep. Thank goodness for AC. Absolutely. So, uh, you've been, though, uh, spending some time out in the desert uh, in this Roswell project looking for stuff. And I guess my first question to start at the beginning is, um, how did you get interested in investigating the the Roswell case? Yeah, I was... um... Well, I, I was kind of fascinated by it. I'd always been fascinated by uh, by, by UFOs. I actually saw one uh, when I was probably, I, don't know, I think it was about 22 years old, I guess. I was uh, camping out at uh, at Tucumcari, and uh, it was uh, late at night, and I was camping out with a friend of mine. And he said, hey, you know, look up in the sky, and I looked up there, and I said, oh, it's just a satellite. And he says, no, watch what it does. And uh, I looked at it for a second or two more, and the thing zigzagged back and forth and wow. disappeared. And I'm going, oh, well, maybe it had one too many beers. And I said, mm-hmm. hey, uh, I'm, I'm done. Uh, after that, uh, I'm going, well, <laughs> you know, that that's a UFO. And I've been interested in it. Now, when I moved out, out to – when I moved to Roswell, um, I didn't even visit the UFO museum very much. I mean, at, at all. I didn't didn't go there. And then after I was here for about six months, because there was so much, uh, Roswell is buried so much in the mystique of, of, the, uh, of the Roswell incident, I decided to read a bunch of books, uh, look at all the documentaries, talk to as many people. I ran into some, some relatives of eyewitnesses and stuff, and I said, there's really something to this. Then I said, you know, why don't I put my, uh, my scientific um, expertise to work on this and see if I can maybe help solve, maybe find some physical evidence. I mean, that's, that's what I basically went out to, to look for. 
So uh, that's essentially how I got started with it. I I wanted to uh, I wanted to, to I, I I want to find something. I basically wanted to uh, get some kind of proof, which was what was missing. And uh, mm-hmm. so, like I said, I read all the books and and read all the documentaries, and then formulated a plan and and uh, um, got pretty frustrated after a while uh, looking <laughs> for things. But uh, it seems it seems to have panned out. Uh, now. Your colleagues and your students at the New Mexico Military Institute, do they know of your interest? There's only a very – there's there's very few of them. I, I don't talk about the UFO stuff very much where I work hardly at all. There's a, there's a few people that uh, that know of my interest in it. They talk to me about it, but usually not not much, and certainly not during during working hours. Uh, usually at lunchtime or something, they might uh, they, they've asked me a little bit. The students, I I don't involve them with it uh, at, at all. Uh, um, I've had maybe one or two ask me some things that just kind of came out uh, maybe during a, a study hall or something like that. But I, I mm-hmm. usually I usually keep keep. My research, the UFO research, yeah. away from my my work at uh, at uh, at the New Mexico Military Institute. Well, I know when we are doing some of the festivals out there, and I was involved with organizing uh, a few of them in the past few years. The the Military Institute let us use their hall there, a big, great theater. Oh, uh, for Pearson some of Auditorium. The that place, yeah. They just redid that. The place is huge. Uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. And we we did some of our presentations there. And some of the uh, people from the the institute would come, and I I don't remember who you'd probably know who, and then maybe I'd out them, and you'd know, hey, you're a UFO person, so am I, and you could talk. But uh, I was, is this are the maybe administrators that you work with that know about this pretty open to it? Oh, you know, it's all part of Roswell. They, uh, the uh-huh. people that work there, they they know about the Roswell incident and. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, matter of fact, I saw um, um, I saw the son of of the um, of some of our uh, uh, leadership basically at the opening for the uh, mm. for this Roswell festival that was downtown at the UFO museum. I was quite surprised to see him there. Yeah. His, his son is very much interested in uh, the UFO phenomena. So cool. So your discovery started when, uh, if I'm correct, you looked at some satellite images. And uh, were these images kind of the general area uh, where um, the the like the sci-fi group did the dig? Where yep, Don absolutely. Schmidt, what I did uh-huh. was actually use the sci-fi group. The uh, what was it? The um, um, it was the Roswell dig. Yeah, the Roswell digs. I used that kind of back-engineered that a little bit. I, I looked at the science mm-hmm. behind that, and I'm going well. They can find big stuff, but they're not looking for the little stuff. But what I did was, as soon as I saw that, I'm going, you know what, I need to take a look at some satellite imagery. I'm pretty good with what's called multispectral, so I pulled down some Landsat um, satellite imagery. I pulled down another satellite is called Aster. And then I also looked at some of the old, like, 1954 uh, um, aerial photographs as well. And what I did was I, I uh, manipulated the satellite imagery to uh, to enhance infrared and show areas where the ground was disturbed. And uh, I was I was really quite surprised when uh, when I got the um, when it showed up on my computer screen because the area 
that people talk to, that the witnesses talk about, is three quarters of a mile long, several hundred yards, several hundred yards wide as a debris field. And this area that shows up, this disturbed area, is right smack dab over the top in exactly the same direction that every that the witnesses have talked about. Wow! So I got pretty excited about that when I saw that. And you said it it even had kind of a hard edge. It looked artificial. Yeah, the edges of it are perfectly, absolutely perfectly straight. They, uh, uh-huh. they it looks almost like a perfect uh, rectangle, kind of squared off a little bit on the edges. And and usually when you look at at things like that, you do get some squared off edges in nature, but you don't get a whole bunch of right angles. They just don't show up like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was. Uh, this looked like it was artificial. This looked like somebody had either gone out there and uh, and burned it. Uh, matter of fact, it looked a lot like a burn area is what it looks like. A, a, maybe from the late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere around there. Made it might have even been before that. But it, like I said, it seemed to it matches up the the area matches up perfect with the description of the witnesses. But it does look as if it is artificial, is what mm-hmm. it looks like to me. Now, do you think the area was burned? You said that it. Kind of, I think you even called it a scorch mark before. Yeah, it's uh, there. It it was burned. Matter of fact, uh, I've made several trips out to the uh, to out to the debris field, and there's there's lots of charcoal around from. And in the area has been burned off, and it looks like it's been burned probably, um, and maybe a controlled burn. I guess that's the idea mm-hmm. that I was the the idea that I was looking to put across is it looks like it was burned off um, because it stops at the road. Uh, it goes over to the edges of fence lines, and it just stops. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it makes perfect, like I said, makes almost perfect straight lines, rectangles is what it does. Do you know? Do you have any idea why someone would uh, do a controlled burn there? Um, no, I don't. Uh, uh-huh. You know, there's all kinds of conspiracy things you can weave around this because uh, if there's any kind of Small bits of metal foil or anything that, that's caught up in the uh, in the yucca plants or whatever. Um, there's a possibility that if you burn something, you might be able to either hide it or melt it. One of the two, change its properties. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of things that that kind of go through my mind um, when I think about this because burning off an area makes it easier to find things, but it also makes it uh, it also changes the properties of metals because the metals get get hot. It changes the temper on the metals. There's all kinds of things that have gone through my mind uh, in reference to that particular scorch mark. Mm-hmm. So who knows? So then uh, I guess you, you go out there, and did you go by yourself? Now, actually, I took my son with me on several occasions. Several occasions, I've been out there by myself. My, my, uh, it's since it's such a remote area, you certainly don't want to be out in that location by yourself um, uh-huh. to get snake bit or hurt or whatever. There's, it, it's a, it's a long way to the nearest ranch house. And uh, actually, what time period was it? About how long ago was it when you first went out there to visit the site? The first trip that I made was May of 2010. That's mm-hmm. when I first went out there. And actually, the first trip that I made out there uh, was kind of a general walk around for six or seven hours. I drove my son crazy. He says, how can you look for, <laughs> how can you walk around in the desert for six or seven hours? And I says, well, think about if we were to find a piece of debris from an alien spacecraft. Mm-hmm. My, and that's what I told my son. I says, this would be a history-making event. If, and I 
took a lot of notes, made a lot of, uh, and then it was the second trip uh, that I made out there, which was about three days later that uh, actually I took a metal detector out and used some of my, uh, used a little geology, a little bit of, a uh, little physics, a little hydrology, a little bit of everything to try to plot and plan where, where small pieces would have, would have ended up. That's what mm-hmm. I was looking for. And what did you start to find? Well, now after I, after I ran that metal detector that I've had, now the metal detector that I've got can actually find uh, metallic pieces as small as BBs down to a depth of uh, three inches. Mm-hmm. I was lucky because the ground was damp. It makes for a really good metal detecting, so it had rained a few days before. And uh, so I, I, I didn't find much after that. I was getting real frustrated because the area is very clean. I was out there for probably three, four, maybe five hours swinging the metal detector. Found a couple of little pieces of metal uh, tin. Actually, it was uh, rusty, some rusty nails and things like that, but, but very few. And then in an anthill, I got a, uh, a ping that didn't sound like iron because you can tell the difference in the metal detector. And I got pretty excited, and when I dug it up, it was down about a half inch, three quarters of an inch deep, and I, I held this this silvery aluminum metallic object in my hand that was just, uh, it was probably eight or ten millimeters long by maybe four or five millimeters wide. And I'm holding my kind of staring at it, and I'm going, oh my gosh, this, this, I, it, I, it looks, it looks like, it, it looked to me like the descriptions of the material it looked like shiny aluminum. Uh-huh. Is what it looked like, and I'm going. Well, this is pretty exciting, um, and that was the first discovery. And then subsequent uh, trips that I made out there, I made some additional ones as well. And I mean, chunks of aluminum; those are not. Uh, I mean, you don't find chunks of aluminum in nature, right? Is that correct? No, you don't. It's either got to be associated with uh, with with trash or whatever, but there mm-hmm. uh, there's no trash out there. Um, I've walked around quite a bit, and I haven't found anything that even remo- remotely resembles trash except for a few little pieces of tin that probably came, old rusty tin that came from a um, whatever, maybe an old ranch building or something. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. But even that was few and far between, and then a couple of little nails. But as far as, like, stuff that's an aluminum alloy, there is nothing that even comes close to that but it doesn't the stuff doesn't look like trash it's it's uh, the material that I've the metallic debris that I've picked up from out there is very small and it looks like it's shredded it even looks like it's been melted on the edges some of it even looks like it's been through uh, um, some some stress maybe maybe an explosion I don't know mm-hmm and just to, and for my knowledge too uh, just to understand aluminum a little better I mean of course, you know, other metals, uh, we do find like gold, for instance, you can find a gold nugget. Uh, yes. But some metals, I guess, you just, you won't find nuggets or, or that metal existing in a in a large piece. Is that correct? Or that, that, how does that is work? correct. You know, there's some natural elements that are out there, native elements, they call them, that we can find. We can find native uh-huh. gold in its raw form. We can find native... Uh, native silver in its raw form and we can find native copper in its in its raw form but things like aluminum that does not occur in in nature we don't find raw aluminum aluminum is something that has to be manufactured and that's the only way that we're going to find a piece of it is if somebody or something leaves a piece of it behind somewhere uh-huh so that's kind of exciting because i mean 
uh, like you said, other than, you know, mingled in, among trash, uh, I, you know, how would you find just aluminum pieces, I guess, unless maybe something made of aluminum, uh, which I guess we don't have much that's made completely of aluminum that would um, somehow have broken up in the area. Well, you know, uh, things like aluminum cans, you know, people mm-hmm. people shoot aluminum cans with guns, but even uh-huh. even when they're shot with a shotgun and shot multiple times with the gun, aluminum usually does not shred up like confetti. Um, what it does is it has a tendency to hold together and kind of bend. And this material that I have found out there is they're tiny little pieces that are probably no more than a, uh, most of them are less than a quarter of an inch across. They are ripped and torn and shredded like, like, like paper, like confetti is mm-hmm. what they are. And so you got interested in your finding, and, and what did you do with those pieces? Well, the very first thing I did was I contacted the International UFO Museum, and mm-hmm. I introduced myself, told them where I worked and what I, what I did. And I was invited down to to the museum, uh, and I met with the director there, Julie Schuster, I think that's her name. Mm-hmm. And I um, shouldn't say should, or that's her name. That is her name. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, she'll be embarrassed if she if she hears that. She'll say, oh, Frank can't even remember my name. <laughs> so uh, I went down there, and, and I showed it to her. She made arrangements, and it was just by sheer luck uh, that uh, Don Schmidt and uh, Jack Rodden, was uh, met me down there, and they had a very close look at this piece of metal, and uh, they said, "You know what? Um, you know, let's let's get this analyzed." And the uh, museum um, actually paid for the very first analysis that was done, um, and it was done at uh, New Mexico Tech over in Socorro. It was done via microprobe, and uh, they analyzed it five times, and it came out to be an an aluminum. Uh, silicon, magnesium, manganese, copper alloy is what it mm-hmm. came out to be. And it was a, um, um, it's an alloy that's normally not found as a, um, as like foil form. It's usually used in construction, like to build bridges. And I got kind of excited about this, but I knew that I needed to get some more work done on it. So I took the, um, I took the fragment. I, actually, what I wanted to do is get an isotope analysis done on it right away because it didn't, it didn't look or have the chemistry like something you would expect to find out like normal trash. It, it, was, it was a little different. So I went up to the University of New Mexico to their Institute of Meteoritics, and I uh, tried to get their isotope person to take a look at it. And, he's, and I said, hey, I, I want to get some specific isotopes done on this. And the gentleman said, uh, the only reason why you want those isotopes done is because you suspect this material is from um, outer space, is what he said. And <laughs> he didn't know. where the, I didn't even say that this stuff came from Roswell. Yeah. And uh, then he came, then basically says, why don't you tell me where it's from? And I says, well, it's from the Roswell debris field. And he says, no, I'm not going to look at this. This is a bunch of hooey. Another one of the scientists that was in the office with me, he says, but what if it is? Um, and he just says, oh, I'm not going to do this. So walking down the hallway, this other scientist said he was the manager of their microprobe facility at, at University of New Mexico. He said, I can't get you isotopes, but I can get you some really good numbers to help verify what you have from New Mexico Tech. So I said, that's good. So the next day we ran those, and it came out pretty well a dead-on match for what was done at uh, New Mexico Tech. 
that it was, in fact, an aluminum, silicon, magnesium, manganese, copper alloy, and uh, back to square one, needed to get some more isotope work done on it. And, mm-hmm. um, now, this guy, this guy you went to who denied you, I mean, was he abrasive right from the beginning, or was he mm-hmm. kind of, uh, he was? No, not really. He was, mm-hmm. um, um, he just kind of looked me square in the eye, and he didn't, <laughs> uh, he didn't say, and I'm, I, I don't want to mention his name, of course. Yeah. Uh, he just looked me square in the eye, and he basically said that uh, you have to believe that this, his exact words were, he says, this is a bunch of hooey, don't you think it's a little far-fetched? And he says, "I'm I'm not going to do this." And that I mean, that was about as blunt as 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 anyone could possibly get. He didn't want to mm-hmm. do it. Matter of fact, that seems to be when dealing with like universities or trying to deal with the universities or trying to deal with some research people that are out there. And I and I hate to say this, as soon as you mention the word word UFO, they almost inadvertently shut down. Um, mm-hmm. You know they they are afraid that maybe they're they're going to get laughed at maybe they're ten years on in uh, in trouble or something I I have no idea but a lot of the I would have to say most of the universities won't even touch stuff like this with a ten foot pole if they know that it might be associated with the UFO. Mm-hmm. But like his assistant said, yeah, what if it's real? I mean, it's what if, and that is the main yeah. thing, and that's the reason why he ran. He, he actually. I was with him when he ran all the testing. I watched him calibrate the the equipment. I watched watched everything because I'm familiar with with the, the process and how it works. And he spent probably three or four hours working on this thing and getting some really good, really tight numbers that they basically helped to confirm that we had an unusual metal from uh, from the debris field and it needed some more work done on it. Mm-hmm. So what was his reaction then? He was definitely he must have been interested. Um he must have found your or- original results from New Mexico Tech interesting, huh? You know, I I got that general idea. You know, that's that's part of science. Part of science is to have curiosity, and that's one of the mm-hmm. things that a lot of that that we might lack today is is that that drive and that curiosity, the uh, the search for the unknown, but uh the gentleman that did the work for me was uh, genuinely curious, and he was excited to, to work on the material and to and to look at it. And um, it was it was good. I mean, I, I have to applaud him. The scientist that did the work for me at the University of New Mexico has worked on the Mars meteorites. He does stuff wow. for NASA, and you know what? I would I would consider him at the, at the tops of my list as a as a really good research scientist. Great. So. Yeah, you must have been pretty happy to get his help. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's cool. At least somebody listened to you. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, moving on to your next step. You said uh, next you needed to get some isotopic work done. Yeah, I needed to get some isotope work done. There was a little step in between that had to do with uh, Bigelow Aerospace. Um, I drove, yeah. Uh, yeah, I drove over to, um, thanks to... Um, um, one of the MUFON investigators, uh, Chuck uh, Zakowski, uh-huh. was really very nice nice to me last year uh, when I met him at the at the UFO convention last he year. He's my good buddy. Yeah, he is. He is an awesome guy, and he's a, he's a good um, he 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 does good investigation for MUFON. And uh, he um, he said that he knew um, he knew the Bigelow folk, or not knew them. He knew a contact at Bigelow. He put me in touch with them. 
Uh, it took many, many months to make the arrangements. Um, it's, uh, there's a, a group called Earth Tech out of Austin, Texas. It's run by uh, Hal Puthoff, and uh, so he's, he's pretty famous in his own right for uh, his work on a lot of paranormal things and, mm -hmm. and uh, some uh, physics of uh, space travel. Um, anti uh, gravity, gravity, gravity work is what he does. Um, anyway, I drove over there after arrangements were made to the Earth Tech Lab. Their, their microprobe did not, not microprobe, but their uh, electron microscope was not working. They didn't have a microscope. All they had was what's called an air gap um, X-ray fluorescence unit that can't measure anything less than silicon. For, so it, it couldn't measure aluminum very well, can't measure silicon, can't measure a few other elements. But they did take a look at it. And when they looked at it with their equipment um, that they had, they basically said, uh, well, this is, um, this is unusual material, and we want to have, have some isotope work done on it. And I says, well, that's good. So they started making telephone calls and sending out emails and stuff. And then what happened was I did not leave any of the specimens with them. I brought, the, uh, I brought all of it back, and I says, well, give me a call and let me know um, uh, if you want me to come back and, and when, and, and I'll just drive over and, and bring it, and we'll have it analyzed in any, any place. It doesn't make any difference. So a day, a couple of days went by, and Bigelow basically said, uh, or the Bigelow Aerospace people basically said, well, you know what, uh, we're still working on this. That's going to be a week or two before we get it back. And I'm going, okay, well, weeks turned into months. And wow. uh, finally, uh, they sent me a little report back, and this is what they said. No further research will be done on this. And uh, they didn't send me any data, any hard data. They just said, well, it looks like plain, ordinary aluminum can to us. And they didn't send me any information on it. And I'm going, well, that's I, – I called them up, and I said, well, that's not what you said when, when we were there. You said you were going to do some isotope work on it. And apparently they changed their mind. I had to bug them consistently to get uh, the data. So they sent me the hard data from their equipment, and they, they ran two analysis. The one that had iron in it, they did not send to me. They sent uh, only the one that was the aluminum, magnesium, silicon alloy, and it took me about a week to decompile the data to see if it matched the stuff from the University of New Mexico, which it did. And uh, after that uh, little scenario with the, uh, with the Bigelow folks, um, I um, contacted the museum again, UFO Museum. I said, we need to get isotopes done on this mm -hmm. because Bigelow is not going to do it. A couple questions, and, too. Yes. Um, here. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that they took so long, let alone, you know, um, not being very helpful. They, they took a real long time to get back to you. But it makes it sound then, and I guess one thing we should cover is that you then at one point had found much more than just the one piece. Yes. Sounds in like. fact, uh, the, number, the total number of, of pieces, and it comes from different areas, it's not all clumped together, it's scattered over a, a, very, over a fairly large area at the debris field, but there's, there's like 14 or 15 pieces that have been found. Mm. Okay. And they're all pretty small pieces, huh? They're all very small pieces. Like, like I said, it looks like, uh, it looks like aluminum confetti is what it looks yeah. like. And you had a... Oh, a theory about that. I mean, your your idea was that uh, they would get the big pieces. It's the small pieces that they couldn't get that you decided to try to look for, huh? Absolutely. You know what? All the the technology that people have used out there. There's been a couple of archaeological digs, 
the archaeological digs, uh, if I remember correctly, could not find anything less than, uh, with their electronics that they were using, anything less than an inch or two across. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did they did dig a number of holes, and they mm-hmm. were using screens that uh, basically had a mesh of a quarter of an inch. So gotcha. basically the holes that were dug, um, 1989, I think Kufos was out there, um, and then there was uh, 2000 uh, Sci-Fi Channel, and I think again in uh, or 2002, whatever. There was a couple of other archaeological type digs that were done out there, but they could not um, in basically find stuff that was really really small. It would mm-hmm. have to be stuff that was larger than a quarter of an inch across. And so, most of the fragments I have are, are most of them yeah. are smaller than a quarter of an inch across. So they might have helped you. They might have sifted through and got all the big stuff out of the way so you could get in there and find these little pieces. Well, it, it might be, except for the fact that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't too near where the archaeological digs were. Um, mm-hmm. I was several hundred feet away from that, basically kind of following my own little science leads about runoff and, and, uh, and how the vegetation grows and, of course, looking at, at anthills and, and animal burrows, which is what I primarily focused on. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you can explain uh, why the finding these isotopic values is so important. The isotopes... Um, the isotope values are very much like um, our fingerprints. They, uh, the, the isotopes for elements, certain concentrations of elements um, on Earth basically are unique specifically to Earth. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is if you, if you know basically, for instance, this alloy that I've got, which has some magnesium in it, you can check the magnesium isotopes, and there's like three or four of them, uh, four magnesium isotopes, and there's the there's stable ones that are there. And uh, it's magnesium uh, 26, 25, and 24, I think is what they are. Those are the, uh, those are the elements. And uh, the ratios of those for Earth are always the same. You can... Mm-hmm. You can grab a seashell and it'll have the exact same ratios as as seawater, or you can go and grab a um, um, you know a, another alloy of another piece of metal that has magnesium in it, and those ratios will always show up. But the interesting thing about it is, if it's not from Earth, it'll have a slightly different ratio. If you pull stuff from, say, like We've done we've done some stuff I think from like the Mars meteorites. They have a slightly different ratio, and if you take a look at like chondrite meteorites, they also have a slightly different ratio because they're, these things are not from Earth. Mm-hmm. And then we have done some work, astronomy. It's not exactly precise for measuring isotopes, the spectra from other stars that are many light years away, but. We've looked at the magnesium isotope ratios for stars that are many light years away, and many, many of them are different from what our sun has. Mm-hmm. So our solar system, our Earth, is, is kind of unique when it comes. So it's like, a, it's like a fingerprint. That's why these ratios are so important for determining whether something comes from Earth or whether it comes from another world. Mm-hmm. So I think I stopped you when you said you then went to the, to the museum to um, see if they could help you get this done. Yes, I um, 
there's a there was a company out there which is an aerospace certified uh, which is what I what you need to have is a certified laboratory they're aerospace certified they uh, are um, they they have multiple certifications which means that when they do their analytical work it's really good I contacted that company they gave me a price um, I went to the UFO museum I says let's get this done they said fine we'll pay for it. Uh, it only took them five days uh, to get the uh, the data back, and I almost fell over when I when I saw the information and and uh, and plotted up the ra the ratios were off. They were not, and, and I got very excited about it when I looked at the uh, the magnesium isotope ratios. Uh, there's only two answers that that you could have: either the lab made an analytical error, or the material is not from Earth. And those are those are the only two things that could possibly happen. And aluminum being uh, manufactured, uh, it would. Is there any instance where you would have an aluminum created in, in off planet in space somehow? Um, not by us. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh huh. And uh, I mean that's uh, that's following good scientific method protocols. Mm -hmm. One set of data is not going to cut it. Um, you know, I can say, hey, this stuff is not is not from Earth, but there could also be a mistake. So what needs to be done now for this particular piece of metal is that it needs to be sent off to another lab, another certified lab, and perhaps another one. So you need to get at least two more. And you need to make sure that the information that you get back from them matches the information that you got from the lab that you already had the work done at. Mm -hmm. so in other words, you need to have two or three, preferably three confirmations of the data that you already have showing this stuff is not from Earth in order to come forward and say, this material is not manufactured on Earth. It was mm -hmm. manufactured someplace else. So right now, I mean, uh, things are looking pretty positive. I mean, you have a, a lab that's certified uh, that you have this information from, um, and really uh, indicators are, yeah, manufactured by someone but not here. Um, yeah. Now they wouldn't. That the lab, of course, the lab would not say that they're only they're right. only providing information. But the interpretation of the magnesium isotopes, like I said, there's only two two possibilities: off-world, meaning not from Earth, or there is an error, which is why it needs to be verified by at least uh, two more labs uh, mm -hmm. in order to to make sure that that information is absolutely 100% correct. It's just plain good science. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. I mean, I don't know that uh, we've been in this situation. Uh, for sure, not with Roswell, uh, where a piece of suspected um, Roswell debris has been analyzed uh, or done an isotopic um, analysis. Well, I think, according to some of the work that, that some of the research that I did, um, the museum mm -hmm. did some isotope work on a um, on, on several pieces of material. One of them's on display in the museum. They had it mm -hmm. done at Los Alamos, and it was proved to be from Earth. They have that report over there at the uh, in their research library. It was the um, 
there's a silver, there's a copper silver alloy that's on display over there. It's really pretty. It's a kind of mm-hmm. Japanese artwork stuff. Uh, and I'll have to, I think it's called Haku, uh, Hakume Gane or something. It's really very pretty material uh, that was analyzed because it looks like it's from another world. Mm-hmm. And also, I think during the 50th anniversary, uh, there was some silicon that was looked at that was called, I think the specimen was called RR3, and it was some work uh, that was done on that. And they, and they actually made an announcement that their isotope values uh, might have been, might, uh, or didn't say might, they said their isotope values were from another world. But then what happened was uh, that was only one analysis. They didn't have multiple mm. ones, and, and I think it, it, it was, from what I've heard, a little bit of an embarrassment because it came out that, uh, that, it, that may not be um, from another world. It's probably yeah. from Earth, and it's probably silicon. And those are the kinds of things that I've actually run into because I've had another uh, uh, several researchers out there that basically have, have told me, they said, you know, Roswell has a lot of, uh, there, there's been some hoaxes out there. They also said that uh, we've been down this path before. And I says, well, that's why I need help from the researchers that are out there because I want to follow the right path and do this the right way, and I don't want to make any mistakes. And I've had mm-hmm. some pretty good help from a few people that have done this before. So are you on, uh, do you have plans for a second test? Yes, uh, a Great. second and a third. Those are Great. those are coming up here. Probably, I bet within the next, uh, with, certainly within the next few weeks or so, we're going to be in. Uh, we're going to get some more work done on this and uh, see if we can get confirmation that this stuff is again from a, another world. I mean, it. Uh, the, the I'm hopeful, and the only reason why I'm hopeful is that usually certified labs don't make like serious blunders on things they that's because mm-hmm. that's the reason why they're certified not saying that it can't happen but uh, i am really keeping my fingers crossed and uh, hoping that the science will prove that this material is uh, is not from earth it'll be uh, it'll be pretty exciting news and i mean the material can't just have been i mean you can't like uh or can you can you take aluminum from earth go melt it in space and its isotopic values change no. As far as I know, and I'm not a metallurgist, I mm-hmm. do not believe that besides that it would be incredible, even if it could be done, somebody would have to have extremely deep pockets and have... Yeah, that'd be a heck of a trick. Yeah, it would be. Not saying that people couldn't uh, couldn't manufacture this material. It it could be, but it would be inexpensive in... And, uh, and, and why would anybody want to make something that's 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 fake, that looks like it's from another world, and throw it all over the place. Uh, it doesn't right. make a lot of well, sense. Well, you don't even know people will find it. Yeah, and that's true. And this material has been buried for a long time. You can tell mm-hmm. by the corrosion that's on the surface. You can tell by the rounded edges on it. Uh, when you look at the material, like I said, it appears as though it's been melted. It's been, uh, it's undergone, it's been under a little bit of stress. Um, some fragments of the pieces are folded over probably as many as it's really very thin. It's been folded over probably six times and smashed flat. Um, so it's been rolling around in the desert for a very, very long time out there. Wow. Well, this is exciting. I'm really excited about this. Uh, um, you know, uh, you obviously know what you're talking about and, 
And you did find something else, at least these buttons that were kind of interesting too, huh? That was uh, that was uh, that was a startling find because mm-hmm. I uh, in in my search for little bits of metal, I I, I wasn't. Ex- I mean, I I had found uh, you know, like a little bit of piece of tin, and I I found an old tobacco can that was way up on the ridge, and some pieces of milk glass that are probably from the 1940s or, or whatever laying around out there. But when I, when I found uh, an aluminum button, I'm going, holy smokes. And, of course, the first thing that popped into my head instantaneously was, oh, maybe these are from an alien. I'm going, no, 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 it can't be. No way. No way. This, this is not going to be. But then that whole military thing popped into my head because uh, uh-huh. the military was out there and uh, I found not one, not two, but three aluminum buttons. One of them was buried almost three inches deep in hard-packed clay. And I, mm. I know for a fact it was really old, uh, especially in buried that deep in hard-packed clay. And um, I took lots of pictures of the, of the buttons. I had the buttons sent out. Uh, I sent the pictures basically all over the world. Didn't tell anybody where they came from. I just said, hey, I need them identified because they're reasonably plain plain aluminum buttons, and um, two or three people came back and said they, they uh, appeared to be late 40s, early 50s uh, military trouser buttons or mm. fatigue buttons. And wow. then um, I didn't think too much of that until I gave a um, showed the picture to a um, state MUFON meeting here in New Mexico, and a gentleman came up to me afterwards, and he says, those are fatigue buttons that we used in, uh, like he said, the late, uh, early, not late, he said early, uh, early 50s. I think he said late 40s, late, late 40s, early 50s. And he says, those are the buttons that we wore on, that we had on our fatigues. And I'm going, yeehaw, just the kind of information that, uh, from a historical perspective, to basically prove that the uh, that the military was out there and they were actively looking for something. Um, you know, military fatigue buttons just don't pop up in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, some great work. It's I mean, you know, it's kind of funny because the Roswell thing uh, has been around for so long, and uh, people think, well, you know, how much more can you guys do on this? But there are new exciting things that keep uh, new developments. I come you know, around the I, corner ever so often. You you are absolutely correct. You know, it's a very large area, and uh, there has never been um, some extensive archaeological work done out there. You know, there's been some holes dug. Uh, there's been uh, some work done by the uh, University of New Mexico, their Office of Contract Archaeology with the Sci-Fi Channel. But, see, they only spent a few days out there. To really do this upright, somebody needs to sit down out there and spend the money and the time, and I am almost, I'm dead certain that if people would spend the time and the effort and the money, that Roswell would be proved up and we'd have, we'd have more than the smoking gun. Um, mm-hmm. We would have uh, proof positive that, uh, that uh, there was a crash there from an alien spacecraft, and I know that for a fact. Kind of like your theory. I mean, if, if something really happened there, it seems uh, it would be nearly impossible to clean it all up. Uh, so there must be something left. There is no way on this planet that any that that the military could have gotten it all. That that uh, it was it covered it covered three quarters of 
three quarters of a square or half a square mile, uh, if not more, three quarters of a square mile. And there is no way on this planet that they, they could have picked up all the big pieces, possibly. Mm-hmm. But you've got to remember there was a rainstorm that night uh, that that crash happened. And that means that there's stuff that was washed into the animal burrows. There was stuff that was carried down all the little washes. And there's there was several days before anybody came out there or, or a day or two or whatever. And that just basically means that the animals could have pushed the stuff around. There, it, the military would have had to have scraped probably two feet of soil off of a square mile of land. And there's no way that they would have done that. Mm-hmm. So I am confident that there are still there is still there are still artifacts to be found in that area. It just takes a lot of persistent, a lot of absolute diligent hard work to uh, to find stuff. But I know it's there. Now you also went out, and I think what you found was interesting. Uh, and I had some questions around this too. Uh, you went out to the San Augustine site, which is the uh, possibly a second crashed crash site. Uh, people yes, I did. I was uh, I was invited out to that site um, to basically because of my um, being able to use a metal detector very well. I was invited along in the hopes that maybe some material could be found out there that was related to some previous um, private archaeological work that was done at that particular crash site. Uh, when I got out there, I was I was kind of disheartened a little bit because the um, the area is literally the town dump for the small town of Horse Springs. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. it is the town dump. It is. Is it an it active lo- town dump or kind of a an unofficial town dump? No, it is. It well. Let's put it this way. It's it's the old town dump, probably mm. currently not being used, but it is definitely right. the old town dump. Yeah, uh, there There is industrial trash out there, pieces of tractors, uh, um, sheet aluminum that's laying all over the place. There's uh, styrofoam from buildings. There's old refrigerators. There's... Uh, Probably many thousands of beer cans laying around there, including wow. the ones with the iron sides with the aluminum tops, tops which are pretty old. I've never, I mean, it, it's incredible the amount of trash. And then I had them show me where the original archaeological dig was, where they had dug up this, this stuff that they, that they are claiming as being from a UFO. And I'm going, well, this is only five or ten feet from where there was massive amounts of trash. The trash is scattered everywhere. There's there's probably a quarter of a square mile or maybe more of trash laying all over the place. Um, and uh, the science, there there is no science behind it. It's basically people that get very excited. Every I, I picked up some pieces of aluminum pie plate, and I walked over and I showed it to the, the team leaders that were out there, and I said, here's some aluminum. And they said, oh, my God, Frank, this is a piece of the UFO. This is the same stuff that we dug up years ago. And I didn't say anything to them because I didn't want to really spoil their fun. I should have. I I just basically said in my mind, I'm going, guys, this is a piece of a chicken pot pie. Uh Um, And and it was really kind of sad. They found a a piece of radiator core up on top of the hill, and uh, they said, my God, this is a piece of a UFO. And I'm going, oh, gosh, guys, this is is a radiator core. I mean, I've, I've... I do my own car work. I know what a radiator core looks like. 
but yet they were still claiming that it's a, a, a UFO. I mean, everything that they picked up out there, they were claiming was a UFO, and it's not true. It's most of it is just most of it, meaning that I, it's it's dump material is what it is. Yeah. Well, if they found that site interesting, if they came to you know the Phoenix uh, trash dump, they'd probably be in hog heaven. They probably would because there was probably multiple UFOs that crashed there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, it would seem it'd be impossible to talk about finding a needle in a haystack. Holy moly! It, I mean, and the it it would be it would be they could analyze that stuff from now until you would have to come up with millions and millions of dollars. If something crashed out there, which it very well may be, it's going to be like looking for a needle in a haystack. It's not like the Roswell or not like the Corona debris field. That place is pristine. There's nothing out there. This area is within sight of the little town of Horse Springs. You can actually see the buildings of Horse Springs. And that was one of the things that I had questioned is if something did crash there in the 1940s, uh, that little town was probably still there and the people would have seen it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is extremely highly speculative, uh, this next suggestion. But just uh, to ask you, I mean, did that dump seem older than the crash? So is there any possibility that, that the, the dump was put there after the crash to cover something up? You know, and that's actually a very good question. Mm-hmm. I found a bottle there from the 1940s, um, okay. which I brought back. It was an old bluing bottle from the, um, maybe, yeah. It, you know, there's a possibility the dump may have been there. There's, uh, from the looks mm-hmm. of it, it's in the bottom of a wash. The dump may have washed, all of that, most of that material may have washed down from closer to the city itself. And, uh, the people that I was out there with even mentioned that there was uh, that the military came out there and actually bulldozed the town dump to help cover up the area. Mm. Um, according to Stanton Friedman, Stanton Friedman said that when he was out there, there was no town dump. Mm-hmm. So there is a distinct possibility that maybe they didn't want somebody to find anything, and they really did push the material down there. I don't know. Yeah, be a perfect way to do it, that's for sure. It would be a, uh, you know, what better place to hide something than underneath the noses of the people? Mm-hmm. And you say that this is something that people do, or at least sometimes to contaminate a site, people will uh, drop needles all over the place. Well, Or fr- nails. Yeah, one of the frustrating things I ran across was that there's a particular area at the um, at the Corona debris field, the, the old Brazzle, Brazzle debris field. There's one particular area that is uh, not too far from where they did the Sci-Fi Channel dig. There's a there's a hillside, and the entire hillside uh, is is scattered with nails. Um, and the nails are the nails are not tremendously old, but they're they're old enough to be rusty. And uh, I'm being a being a nugget hunter, going out looking for gold nuggets. Uh, that's actually one of the oldest tricks in the book. If you don't want somebody to find something, what you do is you um, take a couple of pounds of nails and you throw it all over the ground and scatter. And then nobody it will mess up the metal detectors and you can forget about finding anything. Um, mm-hmm. You'll be digging up nails from now till doomsday. Right. So that does happen. 
I just think it's kind of weird that the nails were kind of scattered around the hill in various places, and it just so happens that the nail, the 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 hill is in the perfect location to to basically absorb some of the material from a crashed UFO. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, have you shown your findings, uh, the isotopic work, to some of your colleagues or? some other people in the field of geology uh, and gotten some responses? Actually, I haven't showed any uh, to, uh, other than people that, that were not scientists, I have uh, I have showed it uh, to um, to a few people. Uh, they haven't seen the isotope work, that because I, I just had it done. Most of them were, were gone during the, the summer, so it was just done um, actually almost before school was out here. Uh, I oh, did wow. send the isotope work off to a really good research scientist that has done work on trace evidence. Um, the lady is, I, I would have to put her tops in her field. Um, mm-hmm. And she calls it the way she sees it. If she thinks something is a hoax, she says it's a hoax. And uh, I sent her the data, and she came back with the same thing. She said uh, it's either analytical error or the stuff is off-world. And then she sent it to an, a, uh, an associate of hers, at a university, a scientist, won't mention his name or hers, but he also came back, and I've got all these emails, I keep track of everything, he also came back and said, this is clearly off the chart, and we need to do some more work on this, and that's exactly what those people had said. So there have been some scientists that know what this stuff looks like, they've looked at it, and they basically came to the same conclusion that I did. It is either analytical error or the material is not from Earth. Wow, that's pretty exciting. And have you shared this? I mean, have you done any other UFO radio shows or anything? No, this is actually my first one. Uh, wow. The only other thing that I've done is I, I gave a I gave a talk on this, of course, at the at the panel, a uh, little short talk uh, during the uh, the Roswell panel with Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, uh, Stanton Friedman, and Kevin Randall. Uh, all of those researchers, I freely share this the the data that I have with them. I'll share it with anybody that wants to see it. Uh, it's it's not a secret now anymore. We kept it a secret for a while. Uh, the UFO Museum knows about it. Those folks have seen it. Um, I've sent, believe it or not, I have sent the data off to practically every single. UFO investigator and group in the entire world. I don't think I've touched on Europe yet. They'll probably be mad at me, but if they want it, I'll send it to them as well. Anybody that Uh wants to see it, pictures, data, whatever they want to see, I'll send it to them. Oh, great. Yeah. So this is really – now, do you have this up at – looks like you have a site, AtomicRocks.com? No, I don't have it okay. up on that site. Matter of fact, all of this happened relatively fast. That uh, it was uh, within the, probably the last two weeks, I bet, that uh, in in talks with the museum that they kind of decided to kind of let it maybe let it go a little bit and and see if we can get some people to take a look at the material and such. What I will do is I I will put the information up on the Internet so that people can see it along with the pictures. Uh, or if you want me to send you the pictures, I will send you the pictures you can put up, whatever you yeah, want to do. Yeah, I think you've sent me – you gave me the pictures, so I think I have them. And what I'll do is I'll put them up on the site. So uh, If you uh, want the data, I will be more than delighted to send you the data as well. 
Okay, that would be great. I think I have some of the data, but I don't have the isotope uh, graph. I, I have a picture of it that you showed me. I that will, uh, I I will send you of. the isotope graph, and uh, you can do that. And then, then I, I would like to put together a nice little scientifically oriented site website so that people can grab this and look at it uh, and then give their opinions on it, which would be, uh, you know, I've had... People want to look at it. They want to see what this material looks like, and, and uh, I've, I've had some kind of mixed reviews about it. Well, not mixed reviews. The, the, uh, the idea was, well, I can look at this, but you'll have to send me some pieces of it. Well, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, it goes where I go or, or vice versa. Wherever it goes, I go, so I can see the work that's done, and I'd rather have a certified lab look at the stuff as opposed to an individual. Certified yeah. lab or a university. Well, and a lot of people, especially researchers, are a little uh, cynical and, you know, gun-shy because, you know, oh, yeah. uh, it's been so long. People have researched and they've come across things that might be interesting and they turn out to be nothing. So I think uh, everybody always, you know, gets to be a little careful. They do. They, uh-huh. they do. And and being careful is just fine. But uh, yeah. Uh, and that's what I want to do is follow – I want to follow the path of good science on this. Yeah. And right now the science is good, but we just need more data to back up yeah. what we already have. Right. So at, have you gotten people um, warning you to be careful that, that the men in black are going to come get you? Holy smokes. <laughs> you know, when I first started on this, I never heard so much. I I had – I have met some of the the smartest people that I've run across, and I've met some that are kind of out there, and I I guess we could call them special people. They're really special. (laughs) Um, I've heard things like people are going to try to kill you. I've heard people say that I hope all of your stuff is under lock and key because they're going to break into your house, and they're going to – I I heard all kinds of things. When I went over to Austin, Texas, I was so paranoid about Bigelow that I actually slept with a gun under my pillow the night (laughs) in the motel room. Uh, Uh You had heard some horror stories that Bigelow's with the government or something like that? Oh, yes. I've heard lots of stories. I've heard that, uh, you know, the government's going to uh, tag and bag your house, and they're going to – they're going to follow you and they're going to steal things and, and uh-huh. they're going to do this and do that. I heard, and including mostly the, the Bigelow side of this was the one that uh, was the scariest. Um, you know, those people work for this group and that group, and they all have these government affiliations. And it was kind of, uh, it, it, believe it or not, it's actually kind of scary in a way because people, you don't know whether to believe the stories or, yeah. or whether to just kind of blow it off. Mm-hmm. And has anybody harassed you? Absolutely not. Yep. None whatsoever. Well, now, a very strange incident happened uh, in my house, and uh, I'm just going to chalk it up to the kids playing next door. Uh, uh-huh. There was a laser target shot through the back window of the house. Uh, this was like last week. Uh-huh. And uh, then, of all things, a friend of mine called me up on the phone and said that his, a good friend of mine that lives up in Albuquerque, said that his, uh, he had been targeted with a laser, too. But, see, I think mine was the next-door kids, and then he later called me back and said that, well, there's a movie set uh, a block away, and they were doing some uh, some SWAT team stuff, and he says, I think that's where that laser targeting thing came from. So you, you get paranoid when you hear the stories. Yeah, I'll bet. 
I know. But other than that, I haven't had any instances of anybody, no threats, no nothing, other than than the ones where people were just saying, you need to be careful. And right. that's all. Yeah, trust no one. Don't don't even trust me. That was a person that I was talking to. But I, I've heard the don't trust anybody. Don't yeah. uh, don't do this. Don't do that. And and uh, those are the kinds of things that you hear. But you know what? I have had absolutely nothing happen whatsoever. Nothing. Good. Thank goodness. Yeah, I don't. Um, you know, it, stories of people actually having problems are very far and few between. But of course. Uh, extremely, extremely, but of course there's lots of suspicions and, and uh, you know, you see it on a lot of movies and X-Files. Do you feel like uh, uh, Fox Mulder at all? You know, in a, in a lot... And actually, this is... I've kind of pondered this. I, I love <laughs> doing the research thing, and uh, it's it's... With all the... With all the problems that I've run across, when I mean problems, people kind of ignoring me or, or not, uh, yeah, I, I would have to say, yeah, kind of kind of feel like that. Uh-huh. Probably the best way to describe it. You you uh, you know you, you've seen things, you you work on things, you've got information in your hand, and you, and then it's hard to get people to pay attention to you because they think you're off in some squirrely la la land somewhere. <laughs> right, especially considering. The possible implications, I mean, uh, should things pan out. And I have thought about that, and I don't even know what, what I, I mean, other than, and I'll mention this because the, uh, the researchers at Earth Tech over in Austin, Texas, when they said, if this really does come out to be something, what are we going to do except maybe stand there and just be in awe, mm-hmm. which is, what I would do, but as far as the ramifications as to what it might do to the rest of the world if it does pan out, you know what? I I really do think that it's high time that uh, that the government comes forward and basically says, hey, you know, yeah, it might it might help society as opposed to to hurt it. They they I that's just my eye. That's my take on it. Yeah. Well, my guess would be I think the best thing would to do is to do as big a PR campaign as you can if this if it all comes back. Um, and we'd be more than happy to help. And we'll, but uh, I think if the media really gets it, then perhaps, uh, and the media really um, boasts it, then perhaps that they will feel obliged to give some sort of answer. Otherwise, they're really good at just ignoring people. And that's very true. Uh, like yeah. I said, I've sent this information off to a lot of groups, a lot of people. Most of the time it gets uh, – I'd have to say that a vast 90% of the time it gets ignored. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I even tried to – and not recently. I tried to uh, get some of the – Open Minds has been the best so far. I mean, I've, I've oh, seen the write-up that you folks have did on this is really very nice. Uh, it's gone out to some of the uh, some of the news feeds, and uh, it's all done in good taste. There's nothing distorted. It looks great. great, and that's the kind of that's the kind of reporting that I would like to see. Yeah, well, and it gets me excited because I know you know in this field and in the science in this field, uh, and the scientists I've worked with, they always talk about the importance of the isotopic um, research and getting that done, and and the importance of of finding on those values like you've gotten. So uh, hopefully, yeah, we'll see from here. It's it's, it's exciting to have something to look forward to. I'm looking forward to it, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. We are pretty much out of time. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining all this to us. And uh, we're certainly looking forward to uh, the further results. And I got to say, you know, it, it's uh, been a pleasure meeting you and getting to work with you because uh, you're a great guy on top of it all. Well, and I appreciate uh, Open Minds uh, uh, talking to me on the um, on the radio show that you folks have got, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm excited. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for talking with me. If it pans out, maybe you'll be on the front cover of one of our magazines. Ah, that would, that would be good, too. <laughs> we'll have you standing there, the guy who who found the smoking gun. Oh, that would uh, yeah, it would be kind of history-making. It, it would <laughs> definitely be history-making. All right. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, it was wonderful having Frank on the show. Thank you. He's a great guy. And tomorrow I will post all the information he's talking about with the charts and the graph. So all of you metallurgists and scientists that listen to this show, there's the top scientists of the world listen to this show, I'm sure. You're going to be able to go to our website, openminds.tv, tomorrow and check all of Frank's work and check that out and see all the pictures and everything yourself. So very exciting find. And next week is a great show as well. Ted Peters, who teaches systematic theology at Pacific Lutheran Theology Seminary. He put together a study about religions and how they would react to disclosure if they found out aliens were really visiting our planet. And would they all freak out? His findings were very, very interesting. He's also a very neat guy. So uh, this is going to be a great one. So be sure to join us next week as well it's going to be a lot of fun and as i said check out the website tomorrow for frank's findings and to see pictures of uh, the materials that he found and on some of the data that uh, he talked about today and if you're a technical person you will just have a field day exciting news hopefully it all pans out because yeah like i said this could be the smoking gun Thank you for joining us this week on Open Minds TV. Don't forget to join us next week, and be sure to check out openminds.tv for all the latest in UFO news. Talk to you later, people.